Well, our Lord is uh, certainly worthy of praise and glory and honor, isn't He? It's a great privilege to be able to worship Him together today. Well, I'd like to now invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. And we'll begin looking at uh, verses 1 through 7. As we begin to uh, look at the Apostle Paul, who's now on his third missionary journey. And he has gone through the Galatia region, the Phrygian region. And he kind of has his target set on the city of Ephesus. And he's on his way there. And he's going to meet a group of disciples. And we're going to find out kind of what their story is and the importance of what happens with these uh, disciples. So let me begin reading for you in Acts chapter 19, uh, starting in verse 1. And again, I'm reading the inspired Word of God, so please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. It happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who were coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And there were in all about twelve men. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Back in verse 1, it says that Paul has traveled through the upper country and he came to Ephesus and found some disciples. The Greek text is not exactly quite clear whether he had actually arrived at Ephesus and found the disciples, or he's on his way to Ephesus and found the disciples. I'm more inclined to think that he's on his way to Ephesus because that would explain more of their ignorance of the Holy Spirit. Had they been in Ephesus and been in the church there where Apollos was, who was also a disciple of John like they had been, but had been illuminated, they would have known more than what they apparently knew from what they they claim to know. So it seems like Paul isn't quite to Ephesus yet when he begins to meet up with these uh, disciples. As we look at uh, this encounter, it's going to be very interesting because at the end, Paul will lay his hands on them. They're going to speak in tongues. They're going to prophesy. And that raises up the whole issues about the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, are they valid today, are they not valid today? And it's going to give us an opportunity to examine that and this whole situation, whether or not it uh, endorses the Pentecostal view of a two-stage aspect of the Christian life, and we'll get into all of that hopefully in a few moments. But let's begin to examine these uh, disciples as they're called in verse 1. Uh, as you look at verse um, 2, they're called disciples, 
in verse 1. And in verse 2, Paul says to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now he assumes that they believe. And he's asking them if they received the Holy Spirit. We're not sure what, how much faith Paul assumes that they might have. But their answer is in verse 2, No, we have not even heard there is a, a Holy Spirit. Which is kind of like, what? What are you saying here? So, as you examine these guys, it appears that the nature of their faith is that they're called disciples, but they're probably, this is to be understood as being disciples of John rather than disciples of Jesus Christ. They don't know much about that yet. So, they're disciples of John the Baptist probably at least that, that much. Uh, it appears that they're only familiar with John's message. They received his baptism of repentance. Uh, but they knew less than what Apollo knew that when we saw back in chapter 18, verse 25, even before Priscilla and Aquila educated Apollos more thoroughly on the things of Christ and the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, apparently they're a rung or two lower than Apollos was. So the nature of their faith is going to be somewhat uh, restricted and very deficient. Also, again in verse 2, they admit that no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now that language can be a bit confusing. I don't think they're saying they've never even heard anything at all about the Holy Spirit because these are Jewish believers, we assume, or Jewish disciples. And they certainly had the Old Testament, and there's much about the Old Testament in the Old Testament about the Holy Spirit. And they had some familiarity with the ministry of John the Baptist, and he said that when the Messiah came, he would baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So they knew some basic things about the Holy Spirit. So what do they mean here in verse 2 when they say, no, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit? I think the best understanding of this, and the commentators in general will agree, now basically what they're saying is we haven't even heard that the Holy Spirit has been poured out yet. We heard about it through John the Baptist, but we're not even familiar that the Holy Spirit is. That is, that the gift has been given. In other words, they were ignorant of Pentecost. They were ignorant of uh, the Holy Spirit being poured out. So they're still living in the mindset of John the Baptist probably even before Jesus arrived on the scene. That's the level of their faith. Um, so they only had the faith, they'd only had uh, experience with uh, the teaching of John the Baptist. So again, their faith was deficient. It was a pre-Jesus kind of a faith. It was almost like an Old Testament level of faith. Uh, John the Baptist said the Messiah was coming. That's what the Old Testament said. So it, their faith needed to be completed. It wasn't a completed Christian faith yet at all. Um, they had not heard about Christ's death and resurrection yet. So their faith was deficient. It was incomplete. It just wasn't all there. So I wouldn't call it true saving faith or that they were even Christians yet. So their faith is kind of like, like you're trying to, to make a cake and all you have is uh, flour and a, and a stick of butter. That's all you've got. 
you can't make a cake out of flour. And you might be able to make a a biscuit or something, but you can't make a cake. You you got to have more ingredients. And so their faith is not yet Christian. They need more truth. They need more information. They're not quite there yet. So what we read in verse four, well, in verse three, Paul says to them, "Then what?" Into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So again, that's the extent of their knowledge. And Paul said in verse 4, John baptized with the, repent, with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So apparently, again, it seems to me that these guys were associated with John the Baptist before Jesus arrived on the scene. They had received the baptism of John, the baptism of repentance, awaiting the coming of the Messiah, but they didn't have a lot of information about the Messiah. So again, they weren't Christians yet, in my understanding. They were kind of like an Old Testament They had an Old Testament version of faith. They needed to be informed more about the Messiah, Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And this had not yet happened. So John's baptism is preparatory. It pointed forward to the coming of Christ. It prepared one for the coming of Christ through repentance. But Christian baptism looks back at Christ's accomplished work on the cross, His resurrection, and it completes what John's baptism left undone. John's baptism was just preparatory. It needed to be completed by the coming of Christ, faith in that Messiah, and in Christian baptism. So, they are re-baptized. So they had been baptized with John's baptism. Now they're being re-baptized again by the Apostle Paul. And that seems very appropriate because John's baptism was deficient. It was incomplete. It only brought them so far. And so now we read in verse 6, when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They began speaking with tongues and prophesying. And, they, and uh, there were in all about 12 men. So now they receive the Holy Spirit. Paul lays his hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they began to speak with tongues and began to prophesy. Now this is a very unique event. Why did it happen with them that they were actually beginning to speak in tongues and prophesy when in so many other places that didn't happen? And I think this is the best way to understand this is that this is a redemptive, historical, unique event. It's kind of like a mini Pentecost And there are only really four times in the book of Acts where people speak in tongues. And one of those four times, it's actually implied, it's not even explicitly stated. And Luke is indicating by these events that these guys are speaking in tongues and prophesying that this is a very uh, redemptively important event. And the reason why that is true, I think, is because when the new covenant came, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and inaugurated the new covenant, He's going to bring about, the new covenant will bring about some tremendous changes to the nature of God's people. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was made primarily with the nation of Israel. 
But when the new covenant comes, the blessings of Israel, the promises of Israel, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is promised to Israel, is now going to be shared with believers from every nation, tongue, and tribe. And that was such a radical vision of God's redemptive plan that it needed supernatural confirmation. And I think that's what we're going to see through the book of Acts. And that's why this event is really the final stage of the confirmation of the new covenant blessings being given to any believer, regardless whether they're Jew or Gentile. So what I'd like to do is for just very quickly to uh, review the, uh, the four times when they, the Spirit is poured out and they speak in tongues. Because you're going to see that this is a very redemptive, historically important event when this occurs in the book of Acts. So the very first time, of course, is at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit in uh, fulfillment to God's promises to Israel is poured out on believing Jews. Um, so it's a fulfillment of God's promises. Joel chapter 2, for example, is quoted in, in Acts chapter 2 at length. And uh, 120 of them received the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in tongues. They spoke in tongues. They prophesied. So the new covenant has come. The promised Holy Spirit that was a part of the new covenant blessing promised to Israel has been fulfilled to the Jew. Now that was manifested with the tongues, with the prophecy, because this is a great transition from the old covenant to the new covenant with these greater set of blessings. So that's emphasized at Pentecost for the Jews in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 8, Philip now goes up into Samaria and he preaches the gospel to Samaritans and they believe, but they don't receive the Spirit yet until Peter and John go up to Samaria. And there, they lay their hands on them. I think it says they lay their hands on them. And they, and uh, the Samaritans at that point receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and it doesn't explicitly say they spoke in tongues, but later on it will say that when Simon saw that the Spirit had been bestowed upon them through the laying on of the apostles' hands, then he wanted that same gift. So how did he see the Holy Spirit coming upon them? Well, probably because they spoke in tongues. That's the assumption. We'll assume that that, that occurred there. But it was the apostles, Peter and John, that went up there preached to them, laid hands on them, and then they received the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues. Now, why was that important? Because now you see that the Gospel, the blessings originally promised to Israel, particularly the blessing of the Holy Spirit, is being given to a non-Jew. It's being given to their dreaded enemies, the Samaritans. And that was such a phenomenal event that it needed confirmation by the supernatural gift of speaking in tongues and prophesying. So that's Acts 8. Again, an important expansion of the new covenant blessings now going to non-Jews, Samaritans. And then we come to Acts 10. This is where Peter goes to Cornelius' house. And there he preaches the gospel to them. And they believe 
and to confirm the reality that they have come into a personal relationship with Christ and become members of the new covenant, they also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and they also uh, speak in praise of God. Okay, so what's, why is it mentioned there? Because now you're adding Gentiles. You're going from Samaritans who are kind of half Jew, but they're enemies of the Jews. Now you're going to a full-blooded Gentile Cornelius, a Roman centurion. And now he is receiving the blessings of the new covenant. He's being grafted in, just like Romans 11 says. He's being grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. He is participating in Israel's blessings. But again, that's such a phenomenal thing that a Gentile would get Israel's blessings and Israel's Holy Spirit that it had to be confirmed again by this miraculous gift of speaking in tongues. So you can see that when Luke kind of zeroes in on this gift of tongues is to advance this redemptive plan of God. That the new covenant is not restricted to Israel only like the old covenant was. Now these blessings are exploding and gushing and flooding out into the world. So that Gentiles are now grafted in and become the true seed of Abraham by faith in Christ. But again, it needed that confirmation. It needed that that uh, amazing gift, that supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit to confirm it and, and to also indicate that Gentiles are now officially welcomed into the body of, of God's new covenant Israel. So, with that in mind, now we come to Acts 19. So now we have these um, Jewish disciples of John the Baptist who really had a foot in the Old Testament, a foot in the Old Covenant, still waiting for the coming of the Messiah, waiting for the coming of the New Covenant and the Holy Spirit. They had not yet heard enough about to put their faith and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. So now Paul meets up with them and they become the last group that are officially welcomed into the New Covenant with the confirmation of speaking in tongues. So Paul preaches to them. They believe. They're baptized now with Christian baptism, having understood the Gospel. Uh, Paul preached to them of Christ's death and resurrection, no doubt. Sure he did. It's not explicitly stated, but obviously he did. They believed it. They were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus, we're told in verses 4-6. through And then they speak in tongues and they also prophesy. So now we have the last final group of people that need to be officially welcomed into the new covenant. And these are those disciples of John the Baptist who kind of had a foot in the old covenant, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the new covenant. And when they believe, now they receive the gift of tongues, they prophesy. And it's almost as if they were in somewhat of a redemptive historical time warp up until this point. As if Jesus had not yet come and they had only believed what John's ministry told them. John the Baptist was a forerunner to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. Their faith was very infantile. It was very Old Covenant-ish and Old Testament-ish, if you will. 
and it was time for them to enter into the new covenant, to come to a true saving faith in Jesus Christ, and to be elevated as disciples of the Lord Jesus, where before they were disciples of John the Baptist. So now to confirm that, to authenticate it, they too receive the Holy Spirit, they speak in tongues, and they prophesy. So now they become card-carrying, new covenant believers. They become fully Christians, and they probably got the t-shirt to go with it. But this kind of completes the redemptive picture of including new people groups, if you will, into the new covenant to share in Israel's blessings. Even the number 12 in verse 7 might even be a way in the providence of God to indicate that they are now part of the new Israel of God. Like the 12 tribes of Israel, they're a part of kind of the, the new Israel of God. Some throw that out. But all of these are like uh, many Pentecostal events. Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. They're special, they're unique, and they're also temporary because they all take place with an apostle. All of these events... The outpouring of the Spirit, speaking in tongues, prophesying. There's an apostle there to actually endorse it, to make it official. And this is because of the importance of bringing in the new covenant to these different Gentile groups or non-believing groups outside of Israel. I think these kinds of events, that's also an argument that these events are, are temporary as well. Because each of them in the book of Acts had the personal presence and oversight of an apostle. There are no more apostles today. The gift of apostleship faded out with these guys. So I don't think these types of Pentecostal, many Pentecostal events are happening uh, uh, now or did after this time. So with that in mind, uh, let me... uh, share with you a quote of John Stott who kind of summarizes the condition of these disciples of John. He says, and they were living in in the Old Testament while they were still living in the Old Testament which culminated in John the Baptist. They understood neither that the new age had been ushered in by Jesus nor that those who believe in Him and are baptized into Him receive the distinctive blessing of the new age, the indwelling Spirit. They didn't understand that. Now they do. But now they're ushered in. So now they become full-fledged New Covenant members. They become Christians now. And, uh, and that's why they receive this gift. So let's, uh, let's now look at does the Bible teach a, a second blessing of uh, often called uh, Pentecostalism. And I'm jumping ahead. This screen will be for just a second. But when you talk about uh, the Pentecostalism, it's still popular today in some circles. They teach a second blessing. They hold to a two-stage progression of the Christian life that goes something like this. That uh, first you hear the Gospel of Christ crucified and raised from the dead. You believe in that and you become a Christian. And then at some subsequent point in your life, and something that you need to pursue, is that you hope or pursue the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or the filling of the Holy Spirit, oftentimes demonstrated by the gift of tongues. Two stages. You come to faith, you get saved, 
But then what you really need, in addition to that, is this second blessing, this second Pentecostal experience, where now you receive the fullness of the Spirit, or the baptism of the Spirit, and that's usually indicated when you speak in tongues. And this is quite a common view that's out there uh, in some circles. And so people, those types of people think that this John, uh, Acts chapter 19, these disciples of John are a good example of a two-stage to the Christian life. First, they came to faith. They were disciples, verse 1. And then later on, they received the Holy Spirit and they spoke in tongues. They were Christians in verse 1 and they're Christians now in verse 6 when they, get, when they speak in tongues. The problem with that view is I hope you've already discerned that at least my view is, and many of the commentators that I've read, is that they were not really Christians to begin with. Uh, instead of having a two-stage, they hadn't even gotten to stage one yet until Paul preaches Jesus to them. Their understanding is too infantile. They don't understand the cross, the resurrection. They haven't heard about that yet. So how can they truly be Christians yet? They're not even Christians. They're disciples of John. So the whole idea, I think, that um, they were in some way Christians who just needed the second blessing doesn't fit with this passage to me. They needed to be saved, and they got their salvation, and they got the, the gift of the Spirit all at the same time. I think that's a far better way to understand this. They would have to argue that they were genuinely Christians in verse 1, but they didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. They hadn't even heard about Jesus Christ other than maybe a little bit about what John says. So they're not Christians yet. So the two-stage theory just really doesn't seem to fit. With that in mind, let's uh, take a few moments and examine uh, the nature and the use of the gift of tongues. Uh, because I think uh, this is still something that people are interested in today. A lot of believers... Uh, uh, claim to speak in tongues and some churches emphasize that a lot and I think this will give us an opportunity to examine uh, the gift of tongues briefly this morning the gift of prophecy we'll look at again I will postpone that till probably we get to Acts 21 there's a passage there that will make the gift of prophecy a better passage to study to see if it's still valid today or not but we'll we'll postpone that study but I'd like for us to, uh, to look at the gift of tongues since we read of it in verse 6. When they come to faith, the Spirit came upon them and they began to speak with tongues. So the first thing I want to deal with is uh, what is the nature of the gift of tongues? And I think, in my understanding and the understanding of many, that the nature of the gift of tongues is that it is an unlearned human language. And it's the burden of proof on our charismatic friends to give positive, convincing evidence that the gift of tongues is the ecstatic speech that they all speak in today. The gift of tongues today, as it's practiced today, is not speaking in an unlearned human language. It's speaking in an ecstatic speech. So, this is my understanding that it is an unlearned human language. And you speak it supernaturally. You've never studied it. You've never learned it. 
but you just start speaking it. That's the gift of tongues. It's not the babbling sounds of ecstatic utterance that are commonly uh, called the gift of tongues today. Now, with that in mind, let's, uh, let's go back to the book of Acts and see how the book of Acts describes the gift of tongues. And I think you'll see quite clearly that it was a known human language. So I've just selected a few verses for you. Acts chapter 2, verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Other tongues. This expression only occurs in one other place in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. In the New Testament, that's in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We'll look at it in a few moments. But it clearly speaks with another human language. The language of Assyria. Of the Assyrians who had invaded Israel. That's the only other use of this expression, other tongues. Clearly refers to another human language. If you look at verse 6, And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. So they're speaking in tongues and the people are hearing them speak in their own language. That is, their own native tongue from the countries they came from. And then in, uh, what do I have? Verse 8. We have, how is it that we hear them in our own uh, language to which we were born? And then in verse 9 and 10 and 11, there are 15 different countries that they had come from. They're in Jerusalem now at Pentecost. They've traveled from all these other countries to get there for the, for the feast. And they had their own native tongues, their own native languages from all these different countries where they've come from. And they're hearing the disciples speaking in their own native tongue, their own native language. So clearly, they're speaking a known human language when they're speaking in tongues. And then at the end of verse, uh, what do I have, verse 11? It says, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. So again, what you find in this passage is that the, the tongues is synonymous with the language. Very clear at Pentecost. They weren't speaking a gibberish. They weren't speaking babbling sounds. They were speaking uh, known human languages that they had never learned personally. So it was a miracle of God. It was supernatural. But it's clearly human language that these people spoke. They grew up speaking these languages. Uh, in their own uh, native countries. And also, I would point out that when it comes to the modern day tongues, which is really an ecstatic speech, their linguists have recorded and listened to hours of people speaking in tongues, modern day tongues, and they've concluded that there is no linguistical basis for it being any kind of a language at all. There's no intelligible speech patterns at all in, in the babblings. It's not human language. What's being spoken today is the gift of tongues. Linguists cannot discern evidence of any kind of a language in what's called today the gift of tongues. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his book Showing the Spirit, says this, what bearing does the discipline of linguistics have on the assessment of modern tongues? 
To my knowledge, there is universal agreement among linguists who have taped and analyzed thousands of examples of modern tongue speaking that the contemporary phenomenon is not any human language. The patterns and structures that all human language requires are simply not there. So what's being done today as a gift of tongues was not what was occurring at Pentecost. Two totally different realities. Well, then that raises a question. Some say, well, okay, we granted that the gift of tongues in Acts was a known language, but when you get to Corinth, and Paul writes his letter to the Corinthians, now we're dealing with a different kind of a gift of tongue that is ecstatic speech. And some of them will refer to it as the tongues of angels. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you may want to even turn there. Uh, this is, we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and make some observations about the gift of tongues found in this section. Because many of them want to see the ecstatic speech gift of tongues found at Corinth, totally different than what was in Jerusalem. So in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 13, verse 1, Paul says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So they say, well, look, there's a distinction here. You have tongues of men, that would be human language, and then you have tongues of angels, so that must be something other than human language. So they say, therefore, the ecstatic speech that we're speaking, which is not human language, is the, is the tongues of angels. Okay, there's several problems with that view. Uh, and, and, the, and the idea would be Paul is uh, claiming to speak with the tongues of angels. That his gift of tongues was the tongues of angels. It was different than what they had in Jerusalem. Okay, several problems. Paul appears clearly to be speaking hypothetically in this passage. Notice how verse 1 begins, If I speak. That's a conditional sentence. In Greek, this is actually a third-class conditional sentence which is oftentimes used for speaking hypothetically. And that clearly seems to be the case here because look at what he goes on to say in verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, Paul had the gift of prophecy, but did he, did he know all mysteries? Did Paul have all knowledge? Do you think he would say that he really did? No, he's speaking hypothetically. He didn't, have, he didn't know all mysteries. He didn't have all knowledge. Of course not. Then he goes on to say, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, did Paul have that faith? Did Paul have all faith and that he could move mountains? No, he's speaking hypothetically. In verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, but don't have love, it profits me nothing. Was he doing all that? No, he's speaking hypothetically. If I did all that, if I could do all of that, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. So he's not speaking of his experience, personal experience, of speaking in the tongues of angels. He's saying, he's speaking hypothetically. If I could do that. If I, if I could have the gift of prophecy and, and know all mysteries and, and have all knowledge, if I, if I did give all my possessions to the poor, or if I gave my body to be burned, not that he's actually experienced that or done all of that, but he says, if it's a hypothetical situation, but if I didn't have love, then it profits me nothing. 
That's the point that he's making. He's not actually saying that he spoke in the, in the gift of tongues of angels. He's speaking hypothetically. And even then, let's say that there are tongues of angels. If you admit that reality, which obviously it means something in this verse, why do we suddenly assume that it refers to ecstatic speech? I mean, have you ever read in the Bible where an angel speaks and using ecstatic speech? When an angel speaks in the Bible, how do they speak? What language do they use? Human languages. There's no place in the Bible where an angel stands up and starts to babble like in the ecstatic speech that people claim is a gift of tongues today. They're always speaking in known human languages. So then what is the, the, the tongues of angels? It's probably not that the language is any different than human language, but that the tongues of angels is that their language is elevated because they are holy, sinless, elect angels of God who, who speak on a level that is far uh, more sublime and, and uh, glorious than what humans do. Paul said he was caught up to the third heaven and he heard things that he's not even allowed to speak. Probably not gibberish or babbling, but just the intensity of their worship and praise of God was on a level higher than what men experience because they're holy angels with that heavenly mindedness that's just saturated into their spirit. That would be the tongues of angels. Not that the language is different, but that the elevated nature of their speech, the praise, the level, the exaltation is so much higher. Paul says, if I could speak like that, but if I don't have love, then I'm nothing. And I think that's the better way to understand it. Uh, the word tongues here, again, is exactly the word that we find in Acts. So the burden of proof is on the people who claim that it's, it's a totally different kind of tongue. It's an ecstatic speech. I don't think there's any evidence of that at all in this passage or really any place else. If you go on and, and read, for example, in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, some claim that this refers to ecstatic speech. Where Paul says, For one who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands, but in his spirit he speaks mysteries. He says, well, if he was speaking in a human tongue, well, then this doesn't make sense. Well, it makes perfect sense because what Paul is referring to is that people who speak in tongues, but they don't know what they're saying. Then it becomes a mystery. No one understands. If you speak in a tongue... Without an interpretation, you're speaking in a known human language that nobody understands. And if there's not an interpretation given by either the person who's just spoken tongues, sometimes they can have both gifts, or someone else, then no one will understand what you've just said. And it will be a mystery to them. That's what he's referring to. There's no support here that this has to be some kind of ecstatic speech. It's just merely saying that it's not being interpreted. So nobody knows what's being said. And I think that's the best way to understand that particular verse. Well, hurrying on, let's uh, look at some of the restrictions of tongues. Uh, number one, we find that uh, not everybody has a gift of tongues. That's clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 30. 
Paul says, all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And what you don't see as evident in the English translation, but it's very clear in the Greek, is that Paul uses a particular Greek particle that implies a no answer to these questions. All do not speak with tongues, do they? No. Not everyone's given the gift of tongues. The Spirit gives the gift sovereignly. He gives them to some, but not to everybody. All do not interpret, do they? No. Again, as a clear answer that He's given to this. Also, we learn that it's limited in number. That if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And then notice number three, the third restriction is that it must be interpreted or you must remain silent within the church. Back to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 27 again. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So if there is no interpreter, do not speak in tongues. Because no one understands what you're going to say if it's not interpreted. If there is an interpreter there, then the gift of tongues was allowed. But if someone has the gift, but there's no one with the gift of interpretation there, then they must be quiet. They must be silent. And I'll tell you the reason for that in just a second. Okay, let's move on quickly to the purpose of tongues. The purpose of tongues was not to be a sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, like some of the Pentecostals believe. Because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all, every believer, baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And what this means is that all believers are baptized with the Spirit, but not all believers are given the the gift of tongues, as we just saw in chapter 12. So every believer is baptized with the Spirit. You're placed in the body of Christ. You receive the Holy Spirit. You receive a spiritual gift. But not everybody receives the gift of tongues. So it can't be the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues. And then notice the second purpose, and this is one of the most important is this to be uh, uh, to edify the church? The gift of tongues was designed to edify the church, assuming it's interpreted. And so we can find uh, that throughout First Corinthians fourteen and other verses, that all of the gifts were designed to edify other people. If they don't edify, then they're not to be used. This is primarily the gift of tongues. So some of the verses, like 1 Corinthians 12, 7, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The spiritual gift that the Lord has given to you is not for your good, it's for the common good. It's for the blessing of other people. That's the focus of the spiritual gift. It's not just to bless you, but it's to bless other people. It's for the common good. And then back to 1 Corinthians 14, one who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, and that implies that he's, because he also has a gift of interpretation, he understands what he's saying, otherwise there's no edification going on. 
But one who prophesies edifies the church. Why does he edify the church? Because people understand prophecies. They're in, they're in common English. They're, they're in the language that people understand. So they're edified. So edification is linked with understanding. But if you speak in a tongue and there's no interpreter, no one's edified. You're not edified. You don't know what you're saying. Nobody else is edified. They don't know what you're saying. At 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is one who prophesies than one who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. So don't speak in tongues unless there's an interpreter. If someone does interpret, well then the church can be edified because now they can understand what's being spoken in the tongue. But it's designed to edify if it's interpreted. And then in verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, what will I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation or of knowledge or of prophecy or of teaching? In other words, if I come to you and speak in a tongue, there's no interpretation, how will I profit you? You don't understand the thing I said. You won't be edified. You won't be profited. It's of no benefit to you. And that's his train of thought. Add a few, a couple more quick verses to that in verse 12. Also you, since you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. See, that's what's important is to edify the church and that requires understanding. Finally, verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That's why you remain silent if you do not have someone with the gift of interpretation. You speak in tongues, no one knows what you're saying. Be quiet unless someone can interpret. Then there's edification. So the principle here is no interpretation, no edification. Because Paul throughout that chapter has said what, what you experience when there's no interpretation. When you don't know what you're saying, you're speaking in tongues, you don't have the gift of interpretation. Nobody else is interpreting it. And how does that affect you? He says, well, in your spirit, you speak mysteries. You don't know what you're saying. You don't understand it. Or in verse 9, you're speaking in the air. No one's being, no one's being benefited by it. And in verse 14, he says, the mind is unfruitful. You're not gaining any benefit or fruit at all from it because you don't understand what's being said. Now, by the way, this would apply also to those who use their gift of tongues in a private use also. Because if you don't know what you're saying at home and you're, using, you're praying in a gift of tongues the ecstatic speech, and you don't know what you're saying, you're not being edified. And Paul would say, if you're not being edified, then don't do it. So I think it does have an application there as well. Well, so the second purpose of tongues is to edify when it's interpreted. And thirdly, to be a judgment on unbelievers. And this is where Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 quotes from Isaiah this passage. By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people and even so they will not listen to me. 
So what Isaiah is prophesying to Israel, because you have not listened to me, I'm going to send people with other tongues, the Assyrians. And they're going to invade your land and you won't understand their language at all, but they're going to judge you because you have turned away from me and you have not repented of your sin. And Paul says in a similar way in a local church, if all you're doing is speaking in tongues and no one is interpreting, that's, that is a sign of judgment on unbelievers. And that's why he says later on, tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Because they will come into your church, and if all they hear is this, this uh, noise of speaking in other languages that they don't understand, they're going to say, these people are crazy. I'm getting out of here. And so at the end of this passage, it says unbelievers will enter, and they will say, will they not say you're mad? In other words, their hearts will be hardened and it will be judgment upon them because they don't understand a word that you're saying if all you're doing is speaking in tongues without any interpretation. So tongues are a sign for unbelievers. And especially if they're not interpreted, an unbeliever comes in, hears it, he thinks this is a bunch of crazy people and he'll walk away being all the more hardened against the church and against the gospel. So it's a, sign of, um, it's a sign of God's judgment on unbelievers. Well, <clears throat> with that in mind, let me kind of conclude real quickly with just an application. So in case you haven't figured it out, I don't believe that the gift of tongues today as it's being practiced within the church is valid or biblical. It's not the biblical gift of tongues, which is the ability to speak in an unlearned human language. That's not going on today. So I don't think it's the biblical gift of tongues. If it's not interpreted, it should not be practiced, publicly or privately, in my opinion, because there's no edification. You don't know what you're saying if you don't have the gift of interpretation. So what's the point? It's not going to edify you. And by edification, Paul means far more than just an emotional uh, uplifting. No, you got to understand with your mind and then you respond emotionally to the truth that you understand. That's biblical edification. So if the gift of tongues is not valid today, in my opinion, that's the case, then how should we apply all this? Well, my application is that we still have tongues in our mouths and we still need to speak, not the gift of tongues, uh, we don't need to speak in tongues, but we do need to speak with our tongues. And our tongues and our speech in English need to edify one another. They need to build up one another. That's the importance of our speech. That we can communicate blessings with the use of our tongues today. So if you look at <clears throat> just another couple of Proverbs on tongues being used for edification... Proverbs 15, verse 4. And you can compare your speech with some of these verses. It says, A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So our tongue... Not that we're going to be speaking in tongues, but when we speak with our tongues, it should be a tree of life to those around us. It should bring healing. It shouldn't crush people. 
It shouldn't thrust into them and hurt them and stab them like the thrust of a sword. But our tongue, our speech, whether it's to our spouse at home, to our families, or to our parents, or to people at work or people we come in contact with, our speech should be good for edification. And I think we see that really oftentimes throughout the Scriptures. Paul kind of summarizes this in Ephesians 4 when he says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it may give grace to those who hear. So this should guide our tongues. This should guide our speech. In our homes, in our work with other people, that our tongues need to be guided by this. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. The idea of an unwholesome word is, is was used of rotten things like rotten fruit or rotten fish that stunk. It would be corrupt, poor quality, harmful, evil. So that unwholesome words would be like insults or destructive criticisms or abusive or unkind words, as if like throwing a rotten tomato at someone or, or letting a, a fiddleback spider bite someone and the venom begins to rot the flesh on the hand or the arm. That's unwholesome words. It's not edifying. It's actually rotten. It tears down. Of course, rotten speech, according to Jesus, indicates a rotten heart. Because in Matthew 12, He says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So if our tongue is more like a a stabbing sword, if it's more like burning fire, then we need to examine our hearts and repent of our own sinfulness. He says, don't let it come out of your mouth. Muzzle your mouth. Bite your lip. Kind of like the boy sticking his finger in the dike to keep the, the dam from breaking, the water from spewing out. You've got to plug it up. Don't let those words come out. Think before you speak. It should be for edification, which means to build up people. It should be a tree of life. It should be healing, not tear them down. Of course, sometimes we have to speak sin. We have to expose sin. And that's a part of, of edifying. But it's in a godly way. And then Paul adds, according to the need of the moment, we need to understand what their need is to determine do we exhort them? Do we encourage them? Do we comfort them? Do we rebuke them? Do we gently confront their sin? You need to know the need of the moment. But the ultimate goal is so that it will give grace to those who hear. Give grace to those who hear. So our speech should be like kind of Good Samaritan words. Because people all around us are hurting. People all around us have been beaten up. They're bleeding. They're hurting on the inside. And good Samaritan words will come alongside. They'll bring healing grace to their souls. They'll pour in the oil oil of gladness and grace into their wounds. And will not tear them down, but try to bring grace and healing and encouragement to their souls. Our words should be like good Samaritans who minister to those who are hurting around us. So in conclusion, this is how we're to speak. 
uh, not in tongues. I don't. I think that's left for the the first century era speaking in tongues. But we're to speak with our tongues to the glory of God, knowing that like the gift of tongues when interpreted in the first century, our speech should be for edification, to build up and be a blessing to one another. And so maybe we pray that uh, God will use this to encourage us that we might be a blessing to others. So let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father, we do uh, thank You again, Lord, for this uh, opportunity to study a topic that is certainly controversial. A topic that many believers who love You differ. But Lord, in our attempt to understand what the Scriptures teach, we hope that we have uh, shed some light upon this. And to whatever extent, Lord, we have misunderstood, we pray for Your grace to uh, correct us that we might understand what Your Word teaches and follow it and practice it in a way that will bring honor and glory to You. Lord, as we close thinking about the nature of our words, Lord, help us to, to use our words in a way to edify one another. And Lord, forgive us for the times when our words fail and we're so full of abusive speech or we speak in a, in a, in a way that's not helpful or beneficial. So Lord, just help us to not speak unwholesome words, but words that will bring a tree of life and healing to those who need to hear it. So Lord, thank You for this time together. May the Spirit continue to bless Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For our concluding hymn, we will sing... Page number 561, Lord, speak to me that I may speak. Now may the God Himself sanctify you entirely. 
And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is He who calls you, and He will also bring it to pass. And those are encouraging words indeed. So may God bless you and give you a blessed week. Amen.